setting their course towards the star, the Adain came at last over the leagues of sea, and saw afar the land that was prepared for them, Andor, the land of gift, shimmering in a golden haze. Then they went up out of the sea and found a country fair and fruitful, and they were glad. And they called that land Elena, which is starwards, but also Enadune, which is westerness, or Numenore in the High Elderan tongue. This was the beginning of that people that the Grey Elven speech are called the Dunedain, the Numenorians, kings among men. Hey guys. Hey guys, welcome back to Keep on Tolkien. Favorite podcast for Tolkien stuff. Yeah. We're back here today, episode 22, and we're excited about this, guys. We're starting a new three-part installment. So the first part of which is uh, what you're about to hear today, and um, the series is called The Kingdoms of the Dunedain, the first kingdom being the Kingdom of Numenor, which we're going to cover today. Yeah, we thought it'd be a, a fun subject to cover because the Dunedain, they're pretty important peoples and they have multiple kingdoms over time in different places and they have a lot of effect on the history and the land. Yeah, and they're one of my favorite races. I love the Dunedain. Yeah, they're super awesome. I mean, shit, we get the, the Rangers, Aragorn. Oh, yeah. They're the line of king. Yeah. Super exciting. So we're going to do it in kind of a chronological order. So we're going to start off at the beginning with the Kingdom of Numenor. Which we've also talked about a lot in the last season. Yeah, we've, season. we've definitely mentioned it quite a few times. Yeah, Numenor is a pretty big deal. There's a lot of history there. So let's jump right into it. So, Numenor. Numenor. Numenor is, is uh, peopled by uh, men, of specifically of the Edain. Uh We learned about the Edain in uh, last season. Mm-hmm. Your three main houses being Beor, Hador, and Halith. Yep, so the uh, kingdom of Numenor is the kingdom of the Numenorians. It's on a large island uh, located out in the Sundering Seas, west of Middle-earth, but east of Amman, which is the continent that Valinor is on. So it's somewhere out there somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle, yeah. They say it's a little closer to Amman than it is to Middle-earth. but Right, yeah, yeah, but somewhere in between the two. Yeah, so it wasn't quite Middle-earth and it wasn't the Undying Lands. It was men's own little haven right in between. It's known to be the greatest realm of men in the history of Middle-earth. Yeah, these are like the high men. High, high, high men. Right. These Some are, are yeah. The, this is uh, the uh, Adain mm-hmm. at their best, or right, or the Atani. Excuse me, I meant to use the word Atani, which is the the word for all men, right? Mm-hmm. The umbrella term. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely the highest point that we ever see for men. Kind of like the uh, first age, the Elder Days was the the big high point for the elves. Right. This in the second age is definitely the high point for men. Right, and uh, which we talked about, we've also talked about this uh, on the podcast in the past, is that the Elder Days is kind of the age of the elves, and then the Third Age is the age of men. So this is kind of somewhere where that paradigm shift happens, somewhere Mm -hmm. in the middle. Mm -hmm. So the Kingdom of Numenor was established in the Second Age, year 32, and it fell in the year 3,319. So that means the kingdom was around for a total of... Just over 3,200 years, 3,287. That's a long time. The story of Numenor was actually originally intended to be some kind of like a time travel story of Tolkien's. And it was called The Fall of Numenor. And it was basically supposed to be Tolkien's conclusion to the whole 
Silmarillion, because I mean that's that's where he started. That was his his main work mm-hmm. originally before the Lord of the Rings was his thing. So this was kind of like the very closing of his story in the Silmarillion, the last tale about the Elder Days. And then later when he came out with Lord of the Rings, it became more of a, a linking story between the two eras. Yeah. And also super important with the stuff that happens in the Third Age. Yeah. So let's so, get into some names. Yes. There's a lot of names for Numenor. Why don't you start off, Joel? So some names for Numenor. We've got Numenore, which is Quenya for Westland, or they also use it for the West Folk. Uh, then there's Enadune. I think I said that right. I believe that's right. My, I'm not super uh, versed in Adonaic, but I think yeah. that's right. So that's the Adonaic term for the same thing. It's Adonaic for Westland or West Folk. And I should explain, Adonaic is actually the language of the Numenorians. Of Numenorians, yeah. yeah. they came out with, with their own, like, high... It's kind men. of like a... I always thought of it as, like, a hybrid between, like, uh, Quenya and, like, the languages of men. In, yeah, it's uh, kind of like Valerian. a... Yeah, it's kind of like a crossover between the common tongue and Quenya. Mm-hmm. Because the Numenorians were super into, you know, being friends with the elves, specifically the ones from the West. Yeah. Um, so we've also got Andor, which is Quenya for the land of gift. Or in Adonaic, the word is Yozayan. Uh, we've also got Atlante, which is Quenya for the downfallen. Ironically enough, sounds a lot like Atlantis. And we also got Akalabeth, which is Adonaic for the downfallen. Elena, which is Quenya for star words. Mar Nu Falmar, which means... Home under the waves in Quenya, Westerness, in the Isle of Kings, or the Great Isle. Yeah, there are plenty of names for Numenor. So really to give a, the, a proper introduction to Numenor and the kingdoms of the Dúnedain, we should kind of talk about where the Dúnedain came from. And this kind of has to do with the beginning of Numenor. So originally they were the Edain, which is just the general term that the elves had for men. Well, the three non-evil Excuse men. Excuse me, yeah, yeah. The, the non-evil men. The Edain were the men that came west in the first age mm-hmm. over the Blue Mountains into Beleriand, and they were the men that were generally friendly with the elves. Right. Um, so the term Dunedain comes from that, Dunedain being the singular version. Uh, it just basically means men of the west in Sindarin. comes from the root Idain, meaning men, and Dune, meaning west. Mm-hmm. Easy enough. And yeah, one of the most important uh, moments in the history of the Edain is the War of Wrath. Yeah. Which this, we've talked about before. Well, yeah, we've talked about it a couple times. It's a big deal. So, that yeah, that's the final conflict against Morgoth at the end of the First Age and the greatest war ever fought in the history of Middle-earth. And when they say the greatest war ever fought, they it mean, is yeah. the greatest war ever. I mean, there were, like, tons of dragons and Belrogs yeah, and lasted, all of the Valar and all of the elves and all of the men that could fight were, like, all fighting. Yeah, it lasted for 42 years and actually significantly changed the geography of Middle-earth. And Beleriand was pretty much all but destroyed. Yeah. I mean, Except for, yeah, there was a few uh, few remainders, right? Right, yeah, there were a few, I think, high points in Beleriand that ended up being islands left over off the west coast of, of Middle-earth. There was uh, the Isle of Himling, uh, Tol Fuin, and Tol Morwen, the saddest place the ever. The saddest place in the world. If you guys remember that, uh, harken back to our, I think it's episode 11... Yeah, the story of Turin uh, Turinbar. Yeah, the story of Turin Turinbar, and that's uh, the saddest place in the world. That's where they uh, where Turin is buried, and Morwen died. Mm-hmm. She's that's also, also buried there too. That's also where his sister is buried with him, isn't it? Right, well, that's where she I mean, she killed her. Like, oh, that's right. That's where she, she jumped. jumped yeah, yeah, that, yeah. It's a very sad it's story. A, it's the saddest place. It's like the saddest spot, <laughs> and it remained as a very sad island. Yeah, you can't kill that kind of sadness, right? And then there's also the coastal region of 
Lindon. That's like the western coastal region of Middle Earth. That was also technically part of Beleriand because it was right. Yeah, that on was on the other uh, side of the Blue Mountains. Assyrian, right? Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, it's parts of Assyrian that's left mm-hmm. over, and now it's a haven. Yeah, it's now it's Kyrdon, a haven. It used to be yeah, out. it used to be the land of uh, green rivers, and now it's the coast. Yeah, <laughs> straight up, everything's gone. So that yeah, that's if that gives you an idea of how big the War of Wrath was, it completely changed the geography of the land and sank like an entire country. Yeah, and since it was such a big uh, big deal, that was what ended the first age officially. Yeah, so the end of the War of Wrath is uh, the end of the first age officially. It changed the layout. Um, a lot of the big players changed. We had Melkor was taken out, and men were rewarded for their help in the battle because the battle yeah. was very long and painful. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's just get into some. Uh some uh, some like geography, geography, that, and some early Numenor stuff. Some so geography, and uh, I, I suppose I suppose this is uh, political geography, Demog- yeah. demography. Yeah, the <laughs> kind of kind of the setup of Numenor. So after the first age ended, and the the Valar wanted to reward the Adain for their help, they sometime in the early first age. They don't say exactly when this happened, but the Valar early liter- s- early second age. I'm sorry, early second age. Uh, so in the early second age, at an undisclosed time, the Valar just straight up raised the island out of the sea. And that was their gift. And they made it extremely fertile. It was supposed to be kind of like a Garden of Eden type thing. Yeah, and uh, yes, like this is the island of uh, the gift for for them sticking through through the, the hard times of the War, and Ra- of, the war of the Wrath. Right. And uh, so the greater part of the Adain who survived the battle, and many of them didn't. <laughs> yeah, like we said, 42 years of constant yeah, fighting. Yeah, 42 years of conflict. So the rest, the, the majority of them uh, t- took off and went to the island. Uh, it took 50 years for everybody to immigrate, and uh, they brought between five and 10,000 men, women, and children. That's a pretty big chunk of people. That's a, big, that's a good chunk of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is when they officially became the Numenorians, living on the island of Numenor. Part of the gift that they got also was their lifespan was significantly extended. Mm-hmm. They had a lifespan that was at least three times that of average men. The average Numenorians lived around like 350 years. Uh, some of the royal kindred lived up to 400 years. Yeah. Yeah, they lived a long, not as long as the elves, because I mean the elves are more or less They're immortal. Yeah. immortal. They, don't, they don't die. Right. But uh, men would still die over time. It yeah. just took a oh. long time. Yeah, they also don't get sick, too. I remember reading that. Right, They yeah. don't get sick. The Numenorians don't get sick. Like, the elves don't get sick. Right. Um, but, yeah, men, the dying of disease is a thing of men. Like, that's uh, that's their province. Yeah, elves, elves <laughs> I guess, are, are better than that. They have some crazy immune system or sick. something. Could you imagine, like, sneezing on an elf and they're just like, you're just like, <clears throat> and they're like, like, what the fuck uh, was that? What? Are you okay? Well, ugh disgusting creature gross there's like fluids coming out (laughs) of your face yeah elves would be confused but this wasn't a problem for the numenorians they had they were gifted great health they were also huge well we were just talking just talking a little bit ago they were like over seven feet tall yeah because uh we figured we were doing some figuring so according to the lord of the rings wikia page which is you know hit or miss sometimes but it says that elendil elendil the tall elendil known as elendil the tall was seven foot ten so we're assuming if seven foot ten is tall, that average height is probably around seven feet or so. Yeah, so it, if if you're short, probably six something. Yeah. But still, six five short piece of shit. That's a <laughs> lot of really big dudes. Yeah, I'm six eight, so I would be like probably a little short for a Numenorian. <laughs> You'd be short Numenorian. So as a result of their longer lifespans, it also kind of changed when they reached adulthood. They considered adulthood uh, twenty five years old, unlike. Us people we considered eighteen. Yeah, 
And for a long time, Numenor remained very friendly with the elves. They were particularly friendly with the elves uh, west of them. Mm-hmm. Elves would often come over to them and sail over from Tol Eresea, just yeah, off just the coast of Valor. Where all those, yeah, Teleri lived down there. Mm-hmm. They're singing and they're sailing about. Yeah, so it was a wonderful friendship between men and elves during this time. This is, like we said, the highest point for men, period. Yeah, yeah, this is the, the glory days, as it were. So the geography of the island itself, um, it was in the shape of a five-pointed star, which is one more reason why it was called the Land of the Star. Yeah, and we're going to actually, uh, so make sure you, if you're not a... Um if you're not uh, following us the or liking the Facebook page, um, we throw up maps and stuff sometimes. So. Yeah, and, map, and maps we're gonna, for reference, which yeah, will be really helpful we're here. We're definitely going to throw up a map of Numenor. So Numenor was very fertile land, and it was very diverse, too, for just being an island. Yeah, a lot um, of different ecosystems. It's a, The island was in the shape of a five-pointed star, so at each point of the island sort of had its own separate region and characteristics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it went from everything from stony plains and windswept lands to towering cliffs. There were coastal regions. There were fertile regions. There were regions of fir trees. There were port regions. There was uh, regions of vineyards and fertile farmlands, widespread country, beaches. I mean, like anything that you can think of. It's basically the New Zealand of... uh... Right, straight up. It's like (laughs) New Zealand put on an island. There's groups of hills and grasslands. New Zealand is an island as well. In real life, Joel. Oh, please. <laughs> we have to edit that out. Oh, no. We're not editing that out. <laughs> but yeah, a small island that has many different uh, ecosystems. That's uh, right. Just like New Zealand. That's right. Just like New Zealand, which is also an island. Which is also an island. <laughs> oh, man. Showing how uncultured I am. Joel knows more about Middle Earth geography than real life geography. It's true. So it's true. Let's get into a little more of that. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, northern portion of the island called Forestar. It was the Northlands. There was a northern tip. Uh, then there was the western tip called Andustar. Uh, that had one of the some of the major port cities, the major port city of Adune. So we've also got the southwest portion of the island called Hayarnustar. Uh, there's the southeastern tip, which is Hyarostar. There's extensive plantations there. That's just uh, a lot of trees and such. There's the Eastlands, Orostar. That's mainly a hilly region. And then we've got Middlemar, which is the middle of the island, the inlands. And that's where, like, uh, kings and, and, and things hang out. Yeah, that's the, the central part. province of Numenor. The, the political got, center of Yeah, of it's got the, the highest population there, and that's also where they built the capital ruling city of Armenelos. So that's where the kings are ruled from. Mm-hmm. Um, also in that center region of Middlemar, there's a very important point. There's the Meneltarma, which is in the dead center of the island, and it's basically one giant mountain peak. And that's actually the tallest, uh, I was reading somewhere, that's actually the tallest point in Arda. In all of Arda? In all of Arda. Oh, really? Yeah. That's really crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be insanely tall to the point where it said uh, the far-sighted Numenorians, mm-hmm. when you stand on the peak of the Meneltarma... You can see uh, Eresea. Yeah, yeah, you can see all the way. If you're far-sighted, you can see, uh, like, Tol Eresea just glimmering off the coast of mm-hmm. Malinor. And, and yeah, because this is the highest, like, a super, super high point, um, this is where they built the only known shrine to Iluvatar, yeah. the, the one true god. Yeah, the the tip at the top of the Meneltarmer was considered a hallowed place. The only known shrine of Elovatar. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was, it was a little cool fact. Is only the kings of Numenor were allowed to speak there. So it was completely silent. Yeah, that's how serious. Completely silent. Very, very hallowed ground. Yeah, the um, so the mountain was almost vertical at that point. So um, 
They had to build a winding spiral road to get to the peak. The kings did that. Right, because the peak was so tall, it was literally just like sheer sides and all sides. They had to carve out a road winding around and get to the top, which is kind of cool. Must have been a fun job. Yeah, no kidding. But, I mean, it's the Numenorians. They can do How like, many Numenorians died making that road? <laughs> yeah, so like we said earlier, they also had a very friendly relationship with the elves of Tol Arisea over near Valinor. And as a gift from the elves, just as a sign of friendship... The elves actually brought them a seedling of the white tree of Celeborn. Yeah. Supposed to represent the friendship between the two races. is a lasting friendship. Yeah, and Celeborn is actually a seedling of Telperion, right? I believe so. It was, believe the, so. It was the silver tree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere, I don't know if it was a direct seedling of Telperion, but that's but where... But it descends, yeah. It descends that's where from, it descends the, from. The, the trees of Yavanna, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so that's where we got that white tree from. Um, the blossoms of the tree were supposed to be really beautiful. It, it blossomed near sunset, and the perfume of the flowers would fill the night air in Numenor's royal city. So it's supposed to be just super blo- beautiful and pleasant. Yeah, I got to say, in the Lord of the Rings movie, when they do at the end, when uh, Aragorn's being crowned and the tree is blossoming, mm-hmm. oh, that shit looks beautiful. Right. That looks like the most beautiful place to be ever when that tree's in bloom. Oh. Mm-hmm. I bet it smells because I love like honeysuckles, like my favorite scent ever, and I imagine it smells somewhat like honeysuckle. That's what I. You think it smells like honeysuckle, Joel? What do you think the tree smells like? I have no idea. It's supposed to be super rich, though. Super sweet. Mm-hmm. The strongest flower smell I can think of is like lilacs, but that's or lavender. Or something lavender. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the only condition for this amazing gift that the Valar gave them. One condition. One condition. Kind of like, don't eat the apple off yeah. the forbidden tree. Don't do this. The Yeah, the only condition the Valar gave the men of Numenor was that the Numenorians were to never, ever sail west ever, towards ever. Valinor. They could be on like the west portion of the island, but they could never go far enough west to the point where they could not see Valinor behind them. That was Numenor, yeah. Where or, you I'm could, sorry, yeah, Numenor. Where you couldn't see like where you came from. You, you couldn't you, go close enough to Valinor of, to... Yeah. To the point where you couldn't see Numenor anymore. Yeah. That, that was where the ban was. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, they were all right with that. Fair enough, right? You know, like that's that's what I would have said. This is a sweet deal. Fair enough. And and, right. and then also the stipulation wasn't on sailing east, so you can sail east. as Right, you can go anywhere else. They just weren't allowed to step foot in Valinor because men weren't allowed in Valinor. They had a, Valinor was sort of a, a place made for the Valar and the elves. It was kind of the place where the elves went Toward the end of their life. It's for immortals. Yeah, it's yeah. more or less the immortal lands, and men are not immortal. They have their own separate unknown fate after they die. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be the gift. The Which gift is of the Ilavata. gift of Ilavata, yeah. Nobody knows what it is. Yeah, they just... Uh, You're not allowed here because you guys got something else going on. We're you got something, really sure. yeah. Just be patient, I guess. Yeah. Find out. Be patient. So at this point, let's jump into a little bit of the uh, the royalty of Numenor. So there were... Oh, I love this. Like there, So me and Joel grew up Catholic, and one of the readings in, uh, in, in one of the... the I don't know what day of the year it is, but they do the genealogy of Jesus. You remember that chapter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it's literally like this person, son of this person, son of this person. And it's all the way from David to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there's a part, Annals of the Kings, in the um, Return of the King, that's basically just a list of, of all the kings. And you can go through them. There's uh, how many? How many kings are there? There's 25 kings total. 25 kings. That that well, 25 royalty, I should say, that uh, that ruled in Numenor. One of the we cool got things three, about Numenor. Three ladies. Yeah. One of the cool yeah. things about Numenor is one of the few places in Tolkien's Legendarium that had ruling women. Yeah. And they were strong ruling women. Actually, some of their some of their rules were some of the longest. Mm-hmm. So the very first king, uh, when the kingdom was established in Second Age 32, it was established with Elros, the half elven, as their king. Fair enough. Yeah, and Elros is uh is the brother of Elrond. 
right. son of Arendil, which we talked about in season one. So mm-hmm. go back and listen to the Arendil episode to figure out what's going on with these guys. So when he took the king, they took kingly names, and they made their names in the Quenya language. So he took the name Tar Miniatur, which was Quenya for the high first ruler. He ruled as king from the year 32 of the Second Age to 442. So that a good chunk of time. is a particularly long time. A 400-year rule is kind of crazy. Yeah. That's like a 410. Yeah, exactly, 410 years. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. So all in all, like we said earlier, 25 ruling royalty, and that was over the span of 3,287 years of the kingdoms. So that means each royalty had around 130 years average rule. Really long time. Yeah. I mean, most men didn't even live that long. No, yeah. So next we're going to get into just, uh, we're not going to do the Annals of the Kings, Genealogy of Jesus. Boring. Oh, yeah. No, it, no. going through all 25 was just too much. So we're going to throw out just we're a few. throw out a few. Out. Yeah. So first couple, I mean, you got Tara Elendil. He was the, uh, it was during his reign. He was the fourth ruler of Numenor in the year 590 through 740. He was the first king of Numenor to actually sail back to Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah, he's the one that was like, hey, we can't sail west, let's sail east. Yeah. Let's See start, what we can find. Start connecting with the uh, good old good old homeland. Yeah, and so the next, uh, the fifth ruler, Tar Menildur, and he established, uh, so he took it one step further and actually established like havens and uh, um, I guess you could say colonies in, uh, yeah. in, in Middle Earth. Small colonies. I mean, that was some of the early days of them, of the Numenorians actually starting to befriend the, the men and elves in mm-hmm. Middle Earth. I mean, that's a pretty significant connection there. Um, and then after that is his son, who also became king, Tar Eldarion. Oh, yeah, our good friend Eldarion. Eldarion the Mariner. There are a couple stories out of Numenor, aside from, you know, like the general history of, and the story of Eldarion and Erendis is one of those tales. You yeah, can find I love it, that story. You can find it in the uh, Unfinished Tales. Yeah, yeah. And it is a particularly sad story, but we're not going to get into it here. But yeah, if you if you want to hear a cool story about a guy from Numenor, yeah, read Eldarion the Mariner. It's a nice story out of Numenor. You get a good uh, taste of Numenorian culture and all it's, that lovely jazz. It's good and sad, too. But uh, some important things that he did is he founded the Guild of Venturers, which was basically a guild of Numenorians who would sail off and venture the the world. That was the entire purpose. Yeah. They were strong devotees of Eunin. I think I pronounced that right. That's how I would say The Lady that. of the Seas. Yeah, uh, she's a Maiar, right? Yep, yeah, she's yeah. one of the Maiar of the Seas. The members of the guild were considered the most adventurous of the Numenorians. Uh, they ventured all the way from the northern darkness, all the way down to the nether darkness in the far south, and even as far as the inland seas to the east, all the way towards the walls of the sun, which yeah, is the eastern borders of the world. Yeah, we're, and we're going to throw up a map of uh, Karen Wynne Fonstadt in the, um, the Atlas of Middle-earth does an amazing map of yeah. uh, the voyages of the Numenorians. Yeah. It shows you just how far. They go to places I didn't even know were a thing. Right. Most of the time when we see maps of Middle-earth, it's like maps of Middle-earth or Beleriand or maybe yeah. Numenor. And there are some maps out there that is literally a huge, massive, globe-looking thing. Yeah. With continents I had no idea were there. Yeah. And so the, we're going to throw Numenor, some of that Yeah, out. the Numenorians go all over, man. They lo- Yeah, they literally go everywhere. Yeah, and Eldarion, uh, he was the sixth ruler of Numenor. He ruled from Second Age 883 to 1075. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next ruler of note is Tar and Kelime. Yeah. And she was What's the f- special about her, man? Well, she's we already she. said it. She's a she. <laughs> she's the very first ruling queen of Numenor. It's actually Tar Eldarion's daughter. 
She was the seventh ruler of Numenor, and she ruled from 1075 to 1280. So 205 years, that's a pretty long rule for, yeah, for most of the kings. Intense, yeah. And then after her, like we said, there were three queens. So there was the Tar Telperion. Uh, she was the second queen of Numenor. Uh, the tenth ruler, technically. She was from 1556 to 1731. Uh, another ruler of note, we've got Tar Menestir. And what's notable about him is he was the first of the kings to ally with the elves of Middle-earth. Oh, yeah, with our good buddy Gilgalad over in the Hades. Right, so yeah. this is uh, right around this reign is about, right about the middle of the Second Age, and this is actually when Sauron first reappeared in Middle-earth. Yeah, and this is when he's starting his ring scheme, correct? No, I think this is just before the ring scheme. Well, because uh, he he allies with Gilgalad to start the War of Elves and Sauron, which is oh, because yes. of the rings. Which is because yeah. of the rings. Excuse me, I'm so, getting that confused with the War of the Ring. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is yeah, when this, the rings are first made by Celebrimbor. Yeah, Celebrimbor, yeah, in Eregion. So at this point you had um, Eregion and, uh, and uh, Lindon is all elves. Mm-hmm. All, all that shit. Right, right. So there's a little, little of the goings-on in Middle-earth start to actually affect the Numenorians. So they ally with King Gilgalad, and together this is when they defeat Sauron and end the war of the elves and Sauron in the Second Age. And that war, uh, we've talked about that in the past, that is uh, the war when Sauron gets uh, its his little hissy fit because the rings... Yeah, he wants the rings back. <laughs> he wants the rings back. <laughs> They're like, ah, you we found get... out that I was tricking you? No, give them back. Just give them back. Just give them back. Just come back. <laughs> so uh, a little ways after after him, we've got th- our uh, third ruling queen, Tar Venimelde. Uh, she was from the year 2526 to 2637. Uh, then we've got a significant change Yes, here. yes. Uh, our 20th ruler of Numenor is R. Adunakor. Now that name might sound a little harsher and stranger than the other names because that's when the Dunedain... The kings of Numenor started naming themselves in Adunaic, and they stopped yep, naming they stopped themselves, using in themselves in the High Elven tongue. And uh, they actually banned the speaking of Quenya. Oh yeah, in Numenor. Oh yeah, we're gonna get into that. So this guy, he's significant because this is kind of one of the major turning points for the downfall of Numenor. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, sure enough, uh, the last king of note is Ar Farazon, which is the last king of Numenor, the twenty-fifth, and he was by far the most corrupt. You know what's the most fucked up about Arfarazan? Not even supposed to be king. No, he kind of... We were supposed to have a fourth queen. Yep. And he usurped the throne from her. So he's not even of the line of kings. He wasn't even supposed to marry her because technically she was his His, first cousin. His first cousin, which is illegal in Numenor. They specifically say... Even in Numenor in the old days... First cousins, no go. No. Gross. Gotta be at least kissing cousins. Come on, man. Gross. (laughs) So the era that we're next going to talk about is what's called the Alkalabeth, which is means uh, the downfall. Right. Um, we gave you kind of a summary of Numenor and information and places and names, so you have an idea of what the kingdom was. Right. And the Alkalabeth is the second part of the book that we know of as the Silmarillion. Yeah. It talks about the downfall of Numenor. What what actually happened to this amazing place? Well, I suppose. Oh, I'm sorry. In the case there's nerds out there. I suppose it's the third part, right? Anulindale, Valaquenta, Quenta Silmarillion. So it's the fourth part of the book. Yeah, because I know it's Pardon one Pardon me, nerds. It's the one that comes right after the Quenta, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it bridges the uh, first age with the third age stuff that's in there as well. 
Right. Yeah, so if you'll remember, Akalabeth is actually one of the names of Numenor. I think it's uh, the name for the Downfallen. Yeah, I think they refer Cornwall. to it as that after the Downfall. Like a, right. It's like a historical term, kind of. Right. So for around 2,000 years, like we said, the Numenorians grew in complete bliss. Everything was wonderful. Uh, Numenorian ships sailed the seas and established remote colonies all over the world. Not just Middle-earth, but everywhere. everywhere. Stuff that we don't even know about. Um, but over time, the Numenorians began resenting death, despite the fact that they had those long lifespans. They craved the immortality that the elves had. Around the year 2900 is when Numenor as a whole started to turn away from its roots. Yeah, that was when that paradigm shift happened where um, they started to become estranged with the elves. Mm-hmm. The uh, elves weren't really allowed to... They had to come in secret, right? Right, you yeah. can't speak Quenya anymore. Yeah, the, Numerian, the Numenorians became so jealous of the elves' immortality that they started turning away from all of, all of the roots. This is when they stopped naming their, their kings in Quenya. In Quenya. And they just outwardly started kind of talking shit against the immortals of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Quenya as a whole was banned as a language. The elves had to visit in secret because people weren't quite as friendly with them anymore. And it, it actually got so bad that the Valar sent some emissaries over right. to remind them, hey, this isn't a, death is not a punishment, it's a gift, and right. you it's, have to respect that. It's supposed to be a gift from you, uh, from God to you. From God to you, yeah. Like, we don't even get that gift. No, yeah. But if that, anybody should be jealous, it's us. <laughs> basically. <laughs> but at that point, Numenorian as a whole really was was split. There were the faithful, which was a much smaller population. They were, as you might think, the, the, the Numenorians that were still faithful to the old ways and friendly to the elves. And then there were the kingsmen, who more or less just got super... Oh, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, let's see. Uh, nationalist? Yes. Yeah. Very much so. They very, were just... Very nationalist. They are just all about making Numenor great again. It's all they're out to do, man. Make it's, it all about, it's all about Numenor. That's, that's all that matters. So they didn't heed the warnings of these emissaries that came from Valar. They just kind of disregarded it completely. And the Numenorians eventually came to resent the ban of the Valar from sailing west. And it really frustrated them, so they compensated by sailing even further eastward and colonizing just, yeah, just larger parts of yeah. Middle-earth. Yeah, it, it start, started turning... At first, it was more of a friendly thing. They were just getting all over the place, and then eventually they just started becoming tyrants. Yeah, it's to the point where they had to, like... They were stealing, uh, you know, they were sending yeah. back gold. And they were tributaries. looting. Yeah, they were looting. Yeah. yeah, they were basically like pirates on crack. Yeah. Imagine a <laughs> massive kingdom of pirates that are all over seven foot tall <laughs> and live for a really insanely long time, and they're just, like, stronger and smarter than you in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just kind of did what they wanted. Yeah, who who was to stop them? Exactly. So after the alliance of uh, Tar, Minister and Gilgalad, when they defeated Sauron halfway through the Second Age, Sauron he wasn't obviously completely vanquished. Obviously, we know he comes back. Uh, so after that, he had actually retreated to the security of Barad-dûr in Mordor. And as the Numenorians were trotting the world, establishing colonies along the shores of Middle-earth, Sauron's hatred just continued to grow. For the Numenorians, he really, really hated them. I mean, they were the ones that came over and allied with the elves in more or less... Just swept his ass back to Mordor. Yeah, swept his ass back to Mordor. Yeah, he was all the way in Eregion, man. Like, he was all the way in the Misty Mountains. Yeah, he had a huge reign at that point. Yeah, that's the most land that Sauron ever uh, controlled, as far as I'm aware, at that point. So as Sauron began 
regrowing his forces in Mordor, he actually started attacking these new Minorian colonies, these coastal colonies that they had been setting up. And by the time of the last king of Numenor, that was uh, Ar-Farazhan, Sauron had really been fucking with these colonies for a while, and he even started claiming the title King of Men. Oh. Yeah. And for these fucking prideful Numenorians, That's bad. That doesn't sit well. So absolutely infuriated, Ar-Farazhan sailed with a great host, just a huge host of ships to the shores of Umbar, which is that uh, port that's right down near Mordor, and straight up commanded Sauron to come before him and bow to the might of the king. He wanted him to take a knee. Yeah, because all Sauron's buddies took off. Yeah, when they They saw those shiny Numenorians coming over and they were like, yeah, we're out of here. Yeah, those huge, huge motherfuckers (laughs) just straight up coming in force over to Mordor. Yeah, all the men and orcs that were allied with Sauron just fled. Nope. Yeah, They had zero (laughs) challenge walking right up to Mordor. And as soon as Sauron saw that, he knew he wasn't going to Not by force. He was not going to win by force. So he did the Sauroning. The super, super slimy little Sauron thing. He comes out. He takes fair form because remember he's Maiar and he can do that. Yeah. So he he looks, gets himself looking all pretty, and he goes out there and he he prostrates himself before the king and he's like, "You win, essentially." Yeah, he like sweet talks him basically. Mm-hmm. He starts complimenting him and, and and all that kind of jazz. And the king initially is just not not having it. He's like, "No, we're not obviously like pardoning you of this." He's like, you're going to come back to Numenor with us as prisoner. Yeah. Which is a foolish thing to imprison a Maiar. Because they live forever, and it's literally going to be the task of generations to imprison these people. Yeah, so Sauron just straight up let them take him. He just pretended like this was not cool, but secretly this was perfect for him. (laughs) He was super ecstatic about being taken prisoner. I guess I'll just have to come back with y'all. Oh, man. Oh, no. Yeah, now he's going to be in the heart of this kingdom that he hates. Perfect, right? Perfect place for Sauron. Yeah, and as you might imagine, started as a prisoner, but over time, he gained influence, slithered his way up to the point where he was actually one of the king's advisors. Yeah. Like how? Rasputin. Yeah, straight up. How does that, how does that happen? Come on, guys. And during the time when Sauron was advising to the king, Numenor grew even more powerful. He was teaching them things that they didn't previously know. Yeah, and so Sauron at this point is just, he's corrupted. He's hes begun the corruption of uh, the entire Numenorean civilization as, right. as we know it. Through his deceit and his manipulation, Through just his doing his Sauron thing. And so, yeah, he eventually um, uh, corrupts enough people into following his ways that he starts them on uh, this cool new god called Morgoth. And they, yeah. wor- and they worship him. He converts... The Numenorians to the worship of Melkor. Like Ugh. if that tells you how much this is totally turned around and done in 180. They they were originally one of the only kingdoms of men to have an altar to Ilavatar directly. Right. Yeah. And now they've turned to the straight up worship of Melkor. Of Melkor? Yeah. Yeah. If this shows how how much of an influence Sauron had there, it was crazy. He had them erect a massive temple to the worship of Melkor. It was five hundred feet tall. 500 feet wide and the walls were 50 feet thick with this massive silver dome on top it was it was crazy and And what's their favorite thing to do inside of that temple joel (laughs) well they actually began raiding middle earth for human sacrifices 
whom they would kill and burn yeah. in the temple. Fucking rock and roll, man. Initially, Sauron had them build this big, beautiful temple to the worship of Melkor and had this beautiful silver dome, and then after burning so many human sacrifices, the dome just went black with soot. Like, Ugh. it was a really dark place. Gross. Yeah, at that point, Arpharazon, the king of Numenor, became the greatest tyrant Middle-earth has ever seen since the reign of Melkor himself. Like, holy shit. That's saying something. Right. That's, that means that he was even greater, more of a tyrant than Sauron was. Yeah. He definitely controlled more land. I mean, I suppose he put yeah. Sauron down and sort of captured him. So yeah. that, that shows you And right then there. Sauron kind of used him as a puppet to... As he does. Yeah. If yeah. you go back and listen to our episode four, that's the, our character profile in Sauron, we mm-hmm. talk about how one of the main characteristics of Sauron was he would use people who were seeking power to get his own to power. To get his own power. Yeah, he'd yeah. piggyback. He'd He's d- a piggybacker. It was perfect. Yeah, the, and he he uses that uh, lust for power to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Anything that he wants to get. Anything that he, he wants. He just uses them as a proxy, and this is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, another example of his strong influence, um, at this point, Sauron started urging the king to cut down the white tree, yeah. Nimloth the Fair, that? because it was a memorial symbol of the friendship of the Eldar and the men in the light of Valinor, and he hated that. He wanted to separate them as much as possible. Of course, why not? Now, at this time, Sauron wasn't the only advisor to the king. The king obviously had other advisors before he came around, one of which is a man by the name of Amendil. He's a strong member of the faithful, one of the few that are left around, but still an advisor to the king. The king listens to him. Yeah, and uh, he heard about this, and he was quite dismayed. Quite. And he confided in his, uh, his sons and grandsons, who uh, you'll... Hopefully recognize Elendil and his two sons, Anarion and Isildur, who were trusted uh, leaders of the faithful community. Mm-hmm. And Isildur, he actually said nothing, but he uh, went out into the night, hooded, and he stole a, f- a piece of fruit from the tree. And this is actually a really cool story. Like, he fights his way into the tree. Right. To get, like, sneaks in and then fights his way out, essentially. And he gets, what, seven wounds or something like that? There's, there's a specific number of wounds that he receives. He gets seriously fucked yeah, up. He's he uh, more or less um, completely spent after that. Like, mm-hmm. he's bedridden. He's pretty much unconscious for a while. Yeah. But he came back with that fruit, son. Right. Got that when, he, when he heard that that tree was in danger, he knew how important that was. And then shortly after that, they cut that shit down. Yeah. And they burn it. They and they burn people the, on it. Yeah, they burnt it. They burnt people on it. And apparently the tree itself was, like, particularly smoky, and there was, like, a haze that hung around the capital city for a while from oh, yeah. that tree. And it, yeah, it was supposed to be super ominous. So Sauron continued to play on the, Numenor- the Numenorians' fear of death, and he started to tell them that immortality wasn't a race thing. It was actually granted to whomever lived in the immortal lands. Which is so stupid. Yeah, that's, that's such horseshit. I, I don't know how you could fall for that, but apparently he was a pretty convincing guy. Yeah. Yeah, so he straight up began to turn the king, Arpharazan, directly against the Valar by telling him, great kings take what's rightfully theirs. You know, trying to get him to steal immortality from the Valar. (laughs) Stupid. Yeah. Uh, But, I mean, this shows the corruption of the Numenorians. They craved immortality and power so much. So much. And it shows you the the mental gymnastics that they do. Right. But, I mean, at this point, they were such a prosperous kingdom. They felt like they could do that. That was really all that was withheld from them at this point. Literally. They they covered the entire planet. They sailed Mm -hmm. anywhere they wanted and started 
taking people and burning them, doing whatever they wanted. Doing whatever they wanted. And and, and the Why not take Valinor? Yeah, why not take uh, immortality itself? All The only thing, their only complaint is that they have to die. Right, that's the only problem they have. So, after a while of consideration, our Pharazon actually begins to build what's known as the Great Armament for the purpose of assailing Valinor. He didn't make this known right off the bat. Obviously, this was kind of a hot topic, trying to actually go to Valinor and take it. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the king's men, I'm sure some of them would have questioned this initially, but he kept it on the down low. But his advisor, Amandil, he noticed this was going on, and he more or less predicted that the end of Numenor must have been coming if Mm -hmm. he's trying to assail Valinor. There's nothing good that's going to come of that. Mm -hmm. So he became extremely concerned for the well-being of the people of Numenor. And once again, he confided in his son, Elendil, and he told him that he was going to try to do as Erendil did. Yeah. And he was going to try to sail into the west and plead to the Valar. Plead, beg. Yeah. Beg for help. Please, like, not everyone here is bad. There are still members of the faithful. So I suppose that kind of makes him like Noah. Yeah. A little bit. I suppose it kind of does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose if anyone's Noah, it's Elendil. We'll get to that. Hold on We'll here. get to it. We'll get to it. So Amandil counseled his son Elendil to prepare some ships off of the east coast of Numenor and uh, put aboard the ships all the things that the faithful people didn't want to part with because Amendil thought it was very likely that they were going to have to flee some kind of destruction. I mean, shit, they were going to try to, dir- they're about to try to directly attack Valinor. It's not going to go well. No. So the faithful put aboard the ships many things of beauty and power, uh, such as some uh, really awesome scrolls of lore that were written in some crazy scarlet and black ink. They're supposed to be really beautiful. Uh, some vessels and some jewels. Uh, but some particular things to note, they brought the seven seeing stones, the Palantir. Right. Which become huge. Which become huge. Huge. Um, yeah, and they also bar- brought with them the seedling of Nimloth, which... Uh, That's also very important. Isildur stole. Right. At that point, he stole the fruit, and then they planted it somewhere secret, and they got a, they got a little... Uh, yeah. A seedling out of it. And also what we're assuming, because this is my favorite artifact in the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. uh, um, the Ring of Bear here, we're assuming that that was taken as well. Right. Because the king would have been wearing it, but this is my logic. We were t- we had a conversation about this the other day. Right, right. Um, the king would have been wearing it, but since they were all anti-elf, mm-hmm. the Ring of Bear here is Finrod's ring. Right, so it has... they a... would have taken it off, I right. assume, and been like, man, fuck all this. Right, because it was a sign, that was one of was the first sign of signs of friendship. friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, the house of uh, Hador, right? Uh, house of Beor. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, house of Beor and uh, and uh, Finrod. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're assuming that they took that with them too, although it doesn't specifically mention it. And if any of you guys out here listening know the complete story of the Ring of Bear here, because I've tried to track it throughout the ages, and there's huge gaps in which it's it's not mentioned. But we right. know it gets from. All the way from Barry here to Aragorn. Right. Somehow, so, inexplicably, it survives the War of Wrath. It the downfall, survives the downfall you know, of Numenor. Numenor. You think the king of Numenor would have been wearing it, but like you said, they, they hated, the elves, they hated yeah. the elves. So I think that's a good argument that they wouldn't have been wearing it. Mm-hmm. And At the time, yeah. Elendil could have gotten Taken his hands it, on it, yeah. saved it on the ship. Yeah, and uh, Amandil, he sailed into the west and he never came back. Yeah. Much so like, he, uh, he tried. Tuor, like Tuor. Right, like Tuor did. Um, it's never said whether or not Amendil actually made it to uh, Valinor or not, but he never returned. He tried. No one ever heard anything. So in those days, they started to notice a dramatic change in the weather. 
they started to receive some pretty obvious, ominous signs from the West. And we're going we're gonna to throw out a little quote because we thought this was really cool. In those days, the sky itself was darkened, and there were storms of rain and hail and violent winds. And ever and anon, a great ship of the Numenorians would founder and return not to Haven, though such a grief had not fallen them till then. And out of the west, there would come at times a great cloud in the evening, shaped as it were an eagle, with pinions spread to the north and to the south, and slowly it would loom up, blotting out the sunset, and then uttermost night would fall upon Numenor. And some of the eagles bore lightning between their wings, and thunder echoed between sea and cloud. Yeah, that's that's our beautiful little excerpt. That sounds like some scary shit. Right. Like, if you weren't getting it till now that you shouldn't be trying to attack Valinor, I think they're giving you a pretty obvious sign, like, when the eagles show up, it's time to reconsider what's happening. Right. Because like, that, that is the direct intervention of Manway, which we've mentioned before. The mm-hmm. eagles were created by Manway. They're basically his eyes in the skies, essentially. Right. And now you've got these giant clouds shaped as eagles shooting lightning and things. The lightning actually became a pretty big problem. The lightning increased to the point where it actually started killing men in Numenor. It was yeah. striking people in hills in the fields, and even people just walking in the streets of the cities. People just started getting struck by lightning. And this actually led to a little bit of a repentance uh, for a little while. Yeah, some of the people at that point were just like, oh, yeah, uh, this isn't cool. We'll repent for a little. They repented for like a season. But uh, everyone that, that wasn't down for repenting, they just hardened their hearts more. So they kind of doubled down on everything. Yeah, they definitely. The people do that, man. They double down on stupid stuff. Yeah, I mean, the lightning got really bad. At one point, a giant bolt of lightning actually struck that massive dome in the Temple of Melkor, breaking it asunder. But uh, the temple itself was fine. I mean, it had 50-foot-thick walls, and Sauron was actually standing at the pinnacle of the temple when it was struck by lightning, and he was completely unharmed. He was just standing up there defiant, and in that hour, men thought Sauron was a god. Yeah, I mean... They saw him standing at the temple getting hit with this massive bolt of lightning. The temple, like, uh, dome breaks open, and he's just standing up there, just like, Just give him back. Just give him back. back. Yeah, they would do do anything Sauron wanted at that point in time. That's my favorite keep on Tolkien Sauron quote of all time. Just just give him back. (laughs) I mean, it perfectly (laughs) describes Sauron's character as a whiny child. So getting, getting towards the end of Numenor, in the year 3,319 of the Second Age, Arpharazon, the king, had finally amassed the greatest force ever assembled in Arda. Ever, ever. Including the War of Wrath, if that's the case, right? You know, I suppose that would imply yeah. that, although I would have always assumed that the War of Wrath was bigger. I mean, the War of Wrath included Maiar and Valar, so I guess it wouldn't have to be the biggest army. That's true, because they're incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. We'll have to look into that. So in that same year is when Alfarazan took off and sailed west to make his war upon the Valar and finally broke the ban of the Valar, sailing into the west to the Undying Lands, hoping to achieve immortality. Yeah, and uh, when he... Sauron uh, doesn't come with. Uh, big surprise. Naturally, he, he knows he, uh, he he wants them to go get killed. That's yeah, his whole. Plan. That's his whole. This his whole plan. So he's like, I'm gonna stay here and keep burning people. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Well, I can. I mean, you know, I'm just gonna stay here and burn people, and then take over the island when they're all dead. Right. As our Farazon sails off with just this insane fleet, sounds like, yeah, I'm just gonna stay here and uh, 
There's a lot of people that need to be burnt. I don't know if you see that. Yeah. There's, we got like, we've only burned 30 people today. We've got to keep this up, guys. We need to burn at least 50 to appease Melkor. So, shockingly, our Farazhan's fleet made it all the way to the shores of Amman. And when they made it there, this massive fleet, everything was silent. And in that moment, our Farazhan actually wavered and almost turned back when he finally made it to the shores of, of Valinor. All right, here's a little excerpt about that moment. His heart misgave him when he looked upon the soundless shores and saw Taniquetil shining, whiter than snow, colder than death, silent, immutable, terrible as the shadow of the light of Ilavatar. But pride was now his master, and at the last he left his ship and strode upon the shore, claiming the land for his own, if none should do battle for it. So he's there. He's there, and there wasn't anyone around. Yeah. Super ominous. So when the Grey Armament actually set foot on the shores of Amman, Valinor, the Valar laid down their guardianship of the world and called on the power of Ilovatar himself because the Valar themselves were forbidden from taking any direct action against men. Because they were outside of the song, right? Right. Because they weren't... The fate of men isn't interwoven in the song like the fate of elves and everyone else. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of... They have to be left alone, essentially. They do their own thing. Yeah, they were, they were picked out by Lovato. That's why they had their own unique fate of death. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what happens to them Because that's that. part of the don't fuck with them. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in this instance, I think this is the only instance that this ever happens. Eru Ilavatar, the one god, actually intervened directly yeah. in the events here. And it got crazy. Real crazy. He opened a crazy, a massive chasm in the sea between Numenor and Valinor, and all the fleets of the Numenorians were just drawn down and sunken into this abyss and swallowed up forever. Just like that. And just gone. Yeah, and the king and the men who, who uh, managed to set foot on the Undying Lands were buried under a f- falling hills, and they lie in prison in what's called the Caves of the Forgotten. Until the end of time, they're yeah. still there. That's crazy, because they didn't even get like graciously killed. They're just trapped. Yeah. Just trapped in the Forgotten Caves forever. Well, till the end of time. Till the end of time. Basically forever. And yeah, this time, the, uh, the world, which was flat up until this point, is made a sphere. And yeah. um, it, is, it is now impossible... To sail from Middle-earth to uh, Valinor, unless you already know the way, essentially. Yeah, basically only the elves who know, who already know what's called the, the straight path. The straight road. The yeah. straight road. Yeah, they're the only ones that can make it. It's interesting, because at the changing of every age, first to second, second to third, there's a huge change in the geography. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess first to second, all there was was the sinking of Beleriand and the creation of Numenor. Mm-hmm. But now... The world went from literally flat to a sphere. Uh, Ilavatar cast back the seas west of Middle-earth and the empty lands east of it, and new lands and new seas were made, and everything was different. The land, like like we said, the land of Valinor was, and Tola Arsea were totally taken away. Men could not get it to it anymore, and Numenor was completely destroyed. A quick excerpt about the actual destruction of Numenor. In an hour, unlooked for by men, doom fell. Suddenly fire burst from the Meneltarma, and there came a mighty wind and tumult of the earth, and the sky reeled, and the hills slid, 
and Numenore went down into the sea with all its children and its wives and its maidens and its ladies proud, all of its gardens and its halls and its towers, its tombs and its riches, its jewels and its webs and its things painted in cavern, and its laughter and its mirth and its music, its wisdom and its lore, they've vanished forever. Damn. That's really sad. It's super. I got a little tingly reading. <laughs> yeah, like he really drives home. Like yeah. this is an entire with that, with culture. that repetition. Yeah, like oh, that's literary, man. Yeah, it's uh, beautifully terrifying. Yeah, exactly. And that was uh, that was from the Alcalabeth, which is in the Silmarillion. Yeah, if you guys haven't read the Alcalabeth, it's actually not terribly long. No, it's this is very short, and it's it's a really cool very story. dense though. Yeah, it's a really cool story. Give it a quick read if you've got the time. So, also, not only was the whole world completely changed, but the coasts of Middle-earth were changed again. The seaward regions of Middle-earth suffered a lot of, like, invading water. Uh, The seas totally rushed up and invaded the lands. The shores changed. Uh, Some of the ancient isles were totally drowned, and new isles were uplifted. Hills crumbled, and it was said that rivers were turned into strange courses. I don't know exactly what rivers were turned around or what I, isles disappeared. I tried to find that out because I was curious. I wanted to know if Tol Morrowind was still around, basically. Yeah, and we, we figured, uh, we, we debated about this earlier, because Tol Morwen is on a lot of the Lord of the Rings maps. In the Third Age. In the Third Age, so right. we're assuming it's still there. Yeah, I'm not sure where exactly it's written, but I think it must be written somewhere because a lot of the maps still have it. Mm-hmm. So that was... Awful. But by the grace of the Valar, if you haven't forgotten, Elendil and the Faithful had those ships that they had put off the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. Because Elendil's father, uh, Amandil, told them that they'd probably have to run, and holy shit, was he right. Yeah. So they were sitting comfortably in their nine ships off the Eastern Coast, And uh, they stayed there, refusing the summons of the king when the king wanted them to come to war. And they stayed out there when the soldiers of Sauron came to try to seize them and burn them alive in the temple. (laughs) (laughs) All of these guys don't have enough problems to to think about. And they're just like sitting here just like, oh, man, everybody's about to sail off and get killed. And then they're like, all right, we'll just chill here for a little bit, see what happens. Oh, no, we won't. We're about to be burned alive. Sauron soldiers want to burn you because you didn't go. So they, yeah, they just they just kept their nine ships like anchored a good ways off East yeah. Coast and just kind of hung out and waited to see what happened. And they literally got to watch the downfall of Numenor because mm-hmm. the way that chasm opened up, Numenor tipped and fell westward down into that chasm. Mm-hmm. They were on the east side of the island, so they were sort of spared from some of that. Yeah, and there's that number again, guys. Nine. Nine. Significant. Nine. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this on the toilet, Joel. Shit, you not. I remembered back to our schooling, uh, our religious schooling, mm-hmm. and uh, the numerology of I believe it's the Hebrews, but I'm not I'm not sure. It's numerology, okay. like biblical numerology, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So three, so there's perfect numbers, right? Three, seven, and nine are perfect numbers. Hmm. You remember this? So remember six, 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 right? Right. Is the mark of the beast? Mm-hmm. It's that way because it's three. So six is an imperfect number because it's one less than seven, and there's okay. three of them. Mm-hmm. Three is a perfect number, and six is an imperfect number. So it's the perfect, imperfect number. Gotcha. That's why. So nine is three sets of threes, right? It's okay. a perfect number. Oh. 
Yeah. And I'm sure Tolkien knew that because he's the smartest person. Yeah, he was super into religious history as well. Mm -hmm. Not just Christianity, as many people think, but he was into a lot of... He himself did... He was Christian. Very Catholic, yeah. Yeah, but uh, he knew a lot about a lot, and he included a lot of different inspirations of different lore in his stuff. And yeah, we actually hope to do an episode about that in the future. Yeah, we actually plan on talking about uh, Tolkien himself. Yeah. Maybe do a little uh, bio- biographical. Well, I mean, we were talking about doing the religion and Tolkien thing, too, remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. yeah we're, we have a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff, guys. <laughs> we're already, like, ha- like, a good chunk of the way into season two, and we're still just constantly coming, coming up, up with, with ideas episodes, that, yeah. we, that we don't even have time to do. So we'll get, we'll get them all down eventually. Just keep listening, guys. So back to Elendil and his nine ships. So during the destruction of Numenor, uh, their ships were actually taken by a wild wind and some crazy waves that came out of the west, and they were just helplessly carried to the east. If they had continued to sit there, they would have gotten totally destroyed by all the change that was going on. But through the intervention of the Valar, some think it may have been a result of a Mandil making it. Nobody really knows. Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. That just blew my fucking mind. Maybe he made it, dude. Yeah, well, they say that in the Aklabeth, whether or not it was, whether or not Amandil had actually made it, and and they knew about the faithful a little bit, right? and knew yeah, about yeah. the faithful. It's not really known, but but they were spared nonetheless, right? By the grace of the Valar, the nine ships, the faithful, were spared. They went out of their way to make this crazy gust of wind and waves, and we're gonna and we're gonna yeah, we're excerpt. gonna end the the story with a couple excerpts here. Yeah. A great wind took them, wilder than any wind that men had known, roaring from the west, and it swept their ships far away, and it rent their sails and snapped their masts, hunting the unhappy men like straws upon the water. The depths rose beneath them in towering anger, and waves like unto mountains moving with great caps of writhen snow bore them up amid the wreckage of the clouds, and after many days cast away upon the shores of Middle-earth. And that's where we're going to leave you guys. Uh, we're going to leave you with Elendil and his son sailing away. We're going to pick up in uh, Kingdom, King, excuse me, Kingdoms of the Dunedain, Part 2. Part 2. Arnor. And that's where we're going to start, guys. So that's, uh, that's all we got for you. That's, the, yeah, that's a pretty good chunk of the history of Dunedain. Yeah, and that's, that's about as good as we can do. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if uh, if you guys liked it let us know if you think we left anything out let's talk about it hit us yeah. up on uh, any of the social media sites yeah this is it i guess so uh yeah. like always uh i'm danny J. this is joel n and uh keep on talking keep on talking Aure in tuluva <laughs> <laughs>